Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Working Experience. Today, we are graced by the presence of the author of The Million Dollar One Person Business, Elaine. We had an extremely engaging conversation. We talked about what it takes to create a one-person business that does a million dollars in revenue, and how to start your side hustle if you're in a corporate job and you want... uh, You want to start a business, how to go about it. We talk about a bunch of different case studies from her book. Uh, It was a very good conversation. We kind of, we peeled off into healthcare for a little bit, entrepreneurship in general. It was a great conversation. Uh, I enjoyed talking to Elaine and I hope you enjoy it too. The Working Experience. Route 93 North is almost at a standstill. It's a rough one out there this morning. Snow and sleet. There is no service on the... Stand clear of the closing doors, please. Uh, Yeah, folks, we're going to be a few minutes. We have train traffic ahead of us. We should be moving shortly. John, we need that report ASAP. Where are we on that presentation? And HR wants to see you. Did you return that email yet? We have a team meeting at 10. Did you stay late, Bob? Teamwork makes the dream work. (laughs) They're moving in a different direction. And after the meeting, we'll have a breakout session. Who ate my hot Where are my hot pockets? This microwave is disgusting. Oh, God, what's that? He was sniffing his toenails at his desk. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Working Experience. We have the pleasure of um, Elaine Povelt joining us, the author of The Million Dollar One Person Business. Make great money, work the way you like, and have the life you want. We're very excited to talk to Elaine today. Uh, Elaine, could you give us a a short bio for our listeners, just so they have a, a general idea. Sure, John, and it's great to be here. I am a journalist who writes about entrepreneurship and careers. I was a senior editor at Fortune Small Business Magazine for a while, and then I went freelance 11 years ago, and last year um, I released my first book, The Million Dollar One-Person Business. Excellent. Um, and did you, were you always, um, were you always a writer? Did you start off as a writer and then transition? Like, were, did you always write for um, publications and uh, like specifically business publications? Well, I was born a writer. It's funny. I started writing in kindergarten and I never stopped. I was one of those kids that was on the school newspaper in high school, my college newspaper. My initial interest was not in business, but as I lived my life, I started to realize how important business is to the whole social fabric, and I became very interested in it. And so it's been probably about 15 years that I've specialized mostly in business. Okay, great. So I have uh, I had the pleasure of reading. Actually, no, I didn't read. I listened to your book on Audible, which is a which is a great way. Did you were you did you read the book? Were you the uh... Or was I it someone else? Yeah, that was my novice attempt, and I hope people will be forgiving. Yes, <laughs> I had yes. To with, in fact, it was funny. I had a cold, and I had to take cold medicine because it's a pretty intensive thing where you go into a, a room that's carpeted and just read for eight hours a day, basically, until you're finished with the book. It, it really gave me great respect for voiceover artists. It's really um, not as easy as it looks, but it was a great experience. 
Yeah, it's reading books is very, very challenging. I I own a media company, so I know my way around an audio studio and I've spent I would spend hours and hours and this would be on narration for for documentaries and TV shows and it can be brutal. It can really you start to lose your voice, you start to see double. It it, it sounds silly because you wouldn't think it would be a difficult task. But to read a book is, I mean, you, you must have come home. You must have been exhausted. It, it, it was really surprisingly um, strenuous in, in a way. It was, I think it's the focused attention nonstop because when you, I, I have my own business and I work from home and I break up the day with exercise and I have four children and there's a lot of activity. But to sit in a room like that is is very intense, but it's really the only efficient way to do it. I um, I would love to actually get some more training in it because I realize it's a valuable skill and I think that's one of the beauties of having your own business. You can find new areas to get into, areas where you can develop your skills. So I, I'm actually looking for a coach on that. So if anyone's listening who's a coach, I would love to hear from you. Oh, there there are coaches out there, and if you you're if you get very good at uh, voiceover work as an audio artist, you can make a very nice living, very, very nice living. It, and it's its its own little like subculture. I actually, uh, when we when we get off the podcast, I could give you uh, some names if you're if you're interested. But uh, we're 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 diverting. Um, so going back to I really love the book. Um, I loved the. Um, the, uh, what was great about the book, Elaine gave uh, specific examples of individuals who started out, some started out as a side hustle, uh, and they started a business and eventually worked their way up to $1 million in revenue. And so you have these examples, and then you, you also have this kind of this practical uh guides uh, at the end exactly how these people did it and exactly how you would do it like how how would you create a, a website how would you hire a designer how would you create an app um, how would you get a, um, the legal papers together accounting so so the very specifics so Elaine could you give our listeners a brief overview of the of the book the million dollar one person business and who was who it written for? Sure, I, I'd be happy to do that. The million dollar one person business sprung out of some of the reporting I was doing on one person businesses. I came across some Census Bureau statistics showing that the number of individuals and partners, they're called non-employer businesses if by the um, Census Bureau and the government if they don't have W-2 employees, was growing. And... I didn't realize that you could actually break $1 million in revenue in a one-person business. So I got very curious. I like data. I started slicing and dicing the data to figure out who are these people. And I wrote a blog post about what I found um, based on you know industry and that sort of thing. The census data doesn't tell you which exact businesses are doing these things. It's more like you know the retail category or automotive retail, if you want to drill down a little bit. And people started writing to me and saying, Elaine, this is really interesting. We'd like to learn more. We need to know who these businesses are. Are they starting e-commerce stores? So 
I wrote to the readers because you, you can't really get that kind of information from the Census Bureau. And I said, if you're one of these businesses, people would love to hear from you. Please write to me. So some of them wrote to me. And I wrote a post for Forbes that went very viral. It had five entrepreneurs in it. And it's I think today it has something like 340,000 page views. And it was a crazy experience. I, I've been a writer for many years I had my phone on the dining room table and it felt like it was about to leap up off the table with all the <laughs> and people just really were hungry for this information. So I started doing case studies of the entrepreneurs to find out, you know, what are they doing? Why are they different from the average solopreneur, freelancer, gig economy worker? What what's different in their mindset and their business practices? And so this book is the outcome of that research, which took place over a period of years. Often I would interview them for a shorter story that I published online and then went into more depth in the book. Um, and that would enable me to hear what readers were really interested in. Sometimes I'd think one thing I was focusing on was the most interesting, but then readers would write to me and say, hey, Elaine, you never got into what um, e-commerce platform they use or whatever it is. And then I'd realize, oh, this is a gap in my research, so I can go back to them when I later write the book. An agent actually spotted the, um, the post and saw how – um, much traffic they were generating and reached out to me and said this would make a great book and it was kind of percolating in the back of my mind so that was that was what how, um, how it came about um, one thing that might interest listeners is there is no one category that really dominated in terms of the million dollar one person business and by the way the million dollar refers to revenue not profits and the revenue is the total um, amount of money that the business brings in for folks that are new to business. And the profits are what is left once all the expenses are subtracted, very simply uh, oversimplified there. But that's basically what it is. So I focus on the revenue mark, the reason being that when I see a lot of one-person businesses, they're really not even bringing in enough revenue to have profits. So the first step is getting the revenue then you focus on getting profits and um, you know keeping your costs down, operating very lean, bringing on higher paying clients, that sort of thing, so that you take home money at the end of the day from the business. Um, the categories that the businesses that I thought were most relevant to the average person are e-commerce, manufacturing, and we can get into how that could be a one-person business later if you want to, um, informational content creation, things like um, teachable courses, webinars, that sort of thing, um, professional services. So this would be things like you know, an attorney who leaves a big law firm, highly compensated individual goes out and starts their own firm. Um, personal services firms, these are people like fitness trainers, nutritionists. They often have a certain way of thinking that they might train other people in so that it's not just trading time for dollars, as they say, it, it, it's scaling their thinking and reaching a bigger audience. And then real estate, um, there are people investing, for instance, in small residential properties and they reinvest the money from one into purchasing another one and over time can build up quite a few properties. So these were the main areas. There are some outliers that bring in over $5 million a year, for instance, in finance. 
a lot of hedge fund managers, but I don't think that those are so relevant for a, a mass audience because that requires very specialized skills. So I didn't get into that, but just for the sake of readers who are curious, you can go above this category of one to 2.49 million. That's, it's very interesting. So it, it all, it all stemmed from an article that you wrote that just kind of blew up online. Yeah, it was really interesting, John. It, you know, as a journalist, sometimes you fall in love with certain topics and you think everyone will be really interested in them and then they just fizzle, no one cares. And then other times you write something and it really strikes a chord. And this one was a topic that consistently would generate a lot of interest. I think one reason is because the media and just as a society, we tend to celebrate the big scalable businesses, you know, the next Facebook, for instance, or Google, yet the vast majority of businesses in the United States are one-person businesses, and they get almost no coverage, no recognition. They are very important to the economy. The folks behind them often make very heroic efforts to run them, and they, they weren't getting their due. So I think part of it is just that people finally started to feel recognized. Yeah, it's it is it is very interesting because it's it's very um, it is very simplistic because you, the media will celebrate the Googles, the YouTubes, the Instagrams of the world, which are great, and it, even those companies are they're not overnight successes. It's ten years of blood, sweat, and tears. And the probability of reaching that level, like a billion-dollar valuation, is so infantilely small, it's, it's laughable. When, and when, in fact, most people, like you suggest in the book, should um, you know, set their sights on you know, hitting a million dollars in revenue for a single-person business because with that, you could pay your bills. You could... You know, you have the you have the freedom that affords you in terms of time with your family, and you can choose where to work. So you have all those freedoms, but you know the media, you know, pounds it into people's heads like, oh, you gotta you gotta be the next Facebook, you've got to be the next Instagram. So it's, I, it's, I agree, John. I I do. I think. Um, well, one thing I would like to react to is you don't necessarily have to get to one million to pay your bills, but that's a good aspirational number for people. It's not something most of us will get to overnight, but it doesn't matter, right? Because if you're in it for the long haul, then you, you do have the time, but you do, um, you do need to focus on revenue. I find a lot of people come to starting a business with this sort of um, do what you love, the money will follow mindset. And that's good to some extent. You don't want to do something you hate, but at the same time, it also has to meet market demand, right? There's got to be product market fit or service market fit, or you won't be able to sell it and then live the life you want. So one purpose of the book is to get folks thinking a little bit more about the money side of things. A lot of times, for instance, creative professionals get into it because they love what they do. Or even, um, you know, an accounting professional or an, an attorney, they may love their profession. Um, but it's also important to think about the, the aspects of business ownership that then allow you to do the things that many people want to do, like own a home or if you have children, put them through college or um, retire someday. You can't really do those 
making um, what the average freelancer does today, unless you're living in a very, very low cost environment. Yeah, no, it's it's very it's very difficult, you know, the the freelancers in the gig economy. But I would I would agree with the that premise of of do what you love, which is which is tough. You you don't want to do something that you hate, but you know, f- from a business standpoint, if you were to start a business, you just have to solve a problem. You know, what what do what do a lot of people what obstacles? Um, you know, it's a, it's a shared problem. And if you solve that problem, I mean, obviously you're going to have competitors. You could make a business out of that. And I, 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 that's what I read through with your, with your multiple um, case studies and stories in the book is um, a lot of people would, would start off as like a side hustle or they'd have this problem that occurred in their life and then they would build a business around that and then they would deliver it to people at a reasonable cost and people would buy it. It sounds so simple. And I know it's a, from speaking as a business owner, entrepreneur myself, it's not that simple. It's, it's hard work, but um, it is, you, 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 you find a problem and you solve that problem. And then you got to make money though. Like a lot of these big companies like Facebook, Instagram, there was VC money poured in, private equity money poured in, and they didn't make money. They were using other people's money to scale. So they were loot, they're hemorrhaging money. And there are still companies like Uber is hemorrhaging money. There, there are still companies like WeWork, I was losing hundreds of millions of dollars, and, but they're getting investments so they can, they can prop, prop themselves up. Anyway, I'm, go, I'm going off on a tangent. You I make wanted- good points though, John. Those are really, you know, that's true. If the, you're, I mean, your point that the average person cannot bleed money like a venture back company is No, very- they can't. They, can, they can't. And, 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 the vent, and the venture, and that's the other thing that's kind of ingrained in our society. It's like, oh, I have this idea. Let me go, let me go get backers. Let me go get venture capitalists. But venture capitalists are looking for companies and businesses that are going to increase in value by a hundred, a thousand, ten thousand times. They're looking for these huge, massive bets. They're looking for these Instagrams. If you have a very good business idea that, let's say, could scale to one or two million dollars that would only support maybe a single person or a husband and a wife, a venture capitalist couldn't care less about you. They want nothing to do with you. But that business is not a bad business. It could be a very, very good business. Uh, and that's what I, that's what I, you know, I love about your book is your, your, spot, your spotlight on these businesses that are kind of like, you know, the traditional, I hate to use the, the term mom and pop, but it's these, these small business ideas and they could be very local and you know, you read these case studies, you read these examples, you're like, oh, that's a great idea. You know, I, I wish I had thought of that. Um, so anyway, so getting back to the book, uh, so you share these real life stories uh, pulled from, from uh, interviews from hundreds of entrepreneurs. Do you have a favorite success story from the book? I, I, I don't have a favorite, but one that I often find very instructive for people in terms of 
understanding why these businesses are different is the story of Laszlo Nadler, who is the founder of Tools for Wisdom Planners. He was a project manager at Bank of America. His, um, they had two small children, he and his wife, and his wife was staying home at the time, so he didn't have the luxury of quitting his job. And he had a vision for creating a planner that wasn't a to-do list, a paper planner um, where you plan your week, but was focused on how do you move towards your life's biggest goals. So without the luxury of being able to work on it 100%, he would work on it nights and weekends, experimenting with how to design it. He experimented with different types of printing, like print on demand. And I believe the first year that he was in business, he brought in, it was either 12000 or $14,000. He kind of road tested it on Amazon, um, saw what customers liked and didn't like. And then each year he built up a little bit more. He knew more about how to do this efficiently. He knew more about who his core customers were. And then after two or three years, he hit six-figure revenue, and then he felt confident that he could um, continue to support his family. He had a steady income. He had a steady customer base, and now he does it 100% of the time, and he built it to about $2 million in revenue just by himself with some contractors, um, and then recently hired his first employee. Um, which brings me to another point. I'm not against hiring employees and I'm not against scalable businesses. I think there's room for all types of businesses in the world. And there's a natural point in some businesses where it does make sense to hire an employee. I would never discourage someone from doing that if they, it's great to create jobs, but the challenge for many one person businesses is they don't have the cash flow to support a job. You can't just hire somebody, put them on payroll, and then in two weeks when your customer pays you late, fire them and then hire them back <laughs> and you have the money. That's why they use contractors. And and that allows um, them to extend what they can do. But there is a point with some of them where they really grow way past being a one person business. A good example would be Brooklyn which was a husband and wife team. They're based in Brooklyn. They sell sheets direct to consumers. They um, came across these sheets that they loved and discovered that they were $800 a set. And she, everyone, anyone who's ever shopped for sheets knows they're sort of strangely expensive and you have no idea why. They actually researched it and they found the reason was there's all kinds of middlemen involved in it. So they taught themselves this whole industry. They had no family members in the linens business at all. Um, the husband um, had been in, uh, he went to NYU, he studied business, and the wife, Vicky, was in PR. So they had some good business skills, and they wound up um, putting up their own website. They manufactured them starting small, and then they built up. But one way they tested their idea was they went to the floor of big box stores, and they asked people, what would you be willing to pay for sheets, you know, good quality sheets? They also noticed a gap in the marketplace, which was most sheets are marketed to women and Rich, the husband, didn't, um, he didn't want to go buy floral sheets, right? <laughs> so he, <laughs> like, let's, let's offer some things that men would buy, like, um, you know, window pane plaids and that sort of thing. So they, so they, they knew what customers wanted. They offered something that they saw was missing in the marketplace and that was a winning formula for them but they also scaled up gradually now they're there i think the last time i spoke with them there were 23 employees and they went on to raise venture funding the the, the point of wow the one person businesses is they have options you could there are some that 
have made a conscious decision. I do not want employees. I want my freedom. Others have decided, let's take this as far as we can go. But they have choices not available to the average person in a struggling one-person business. And that that's what I'm hoping to address is that people who listen to this podcast and read the book will come away with tools that will help them add to their revenue and profit so they have options. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, we... All businesses start off as one person. Well, I mean, there could be a partner, but you get the idea. I mean, it, it all starts small and then it, it expands. I don't see the book as, you know, anti-scaling, uh, uh, you know, but, but it, it's very practical. And that's a very great, you know, it's a great, uh, one of my, I like that story about the sheets. Another thing that I can relate to is curtains. I don't, I don't know if you can relate to this but like I couldn't believe how expensive curtains were for my house. It is insane. It, I know. it, it literally like it literally is insane. I remember I moved into my house. I'm I live on Long Island, and my wife and my my two boys. We live in we live in Centerport, New York, and I guess within the first couple of months. We had someone come in, and the, I, I can't remember how many windows it was, but it was a lot of windows in the house. Like It was like uh, over 30 windows. And we had someone come over from Huntington to look at our, our windows and our curtains, and they gave my wife the price. And she literally, like her heart skipped a beat. And she's like, oh, yeah. I, it. I, I know what you mean. It's it's funny. I think I mostly have blinds in my house because we, we were looking at drapery or something. And yeah. Yeah. So if you're if you're listening to this podcast, you, this is uh, this is an opportunity. I'm telling you, you you come out with a, a direct to consumer curtain business. You will make a fortune there. They I spoke with the salesperson. And I was, I thought they were literally trying to scam me. The price was so high. It was in the five figures. I was like, you are, I was like, you're smoking crack. Absolutely not. So then what we had to do was we, we found somebody else, but we did like room by room because it was so unbelievably expensive. It was in, it was insane. It's a good opportunity though. The way that you're, I'm talking about this opportunity is important because there probably are a lot of middlemen in that business. And the whole direct to consumer model is very available to one person businesses. There's a lot of ability now for solos and partners to manufacture their own stuff. Um, for instance, in the food, the food industry, what I found was um, co-packers a lot of times, um, will help very small businesses. If you come up with a food product, you can't make it in your kitchen. You might make the, the prototype of it in your kitchen, but you can't sell that in Walmart because of food safety rules. So what they will do is outsource to um, a, a factory that puts it in the proper kind of packaging. It's all sanitary. The label looks good and that sort of thing. And then it can be carried on the shelves of, of major stores. So you don't have to have a million jars of honey you know there were honey makers in my book in your garage or any anywhere on your premises um birch benders pancake mix that was a young couple um they now it's widely carried i know i've seen it in target and whole foods but they started out in their apartment and they used a co-packer it's it's kind of hard to find one who will do small runs so that's usually the story is there's a lot of legwork and digging but if you're really committed 
to building a business, there, there are so many opportunities. And I think you're, you're absolutely right about the sheets. I'm sure there is opportunity there. Oh, there's, I mean, there's that and there's, there's hundreds, there's hundreds and hundreds of opportunities and it's, it's finding the right opportunity. And then it's also, it's execution. I mean, it all comes down to execution. It's like, it's, there's, yes, the idea is important, but execution is very, very important. Um, so let's talk about, so, so one of the things that I also gleaned from the book is how the, um, you know, we're in 2019 and how the internet has kind of lived up to the premise of leveling the playing field and cutting out the middleman. I mean, this, this has afforded people to operate as a one person business that 10, 15, 20 years ago used to take 10 times the capital and 10 times the labor. Like, like you said, there are, uh, you know, it's like freelancer.com, Upwork. You can uh, you can go uh, to a packager, a manufacturer, a bottler. You can um, you know reach out to manufacturers in China to get a prototype made and and started on Kickstarter. So can you just talk about how uh, the internet has you know afforded um, people to actually you know live out this the premise of a, a million dollar one person business. Oh, sure. You know, that that's such an important aspect of this trend. It's funny because I, I have four children and my children grew up in an era where we always had the internet, right? But for, for listeners who, I, I, I forget what year the internet even came about. It was in the 90s, I believe. I think it was 90, it was 90, 1994 was Netscape, right? Oh, that's right. Yeah, I were, I started working on the internet at, at Time Inc. in 1999, and it was still pretty new. Um, it was at um, Fortune Small Business. At that time, it was me and one web producer. Fortune.com was like one editor and one web producer. At the time, the, the websites were so cumbersome that it, you literally... Uh, they, yeah, it was like, remember the modems? Like the 56K modems, and you would like you would dial in on your phone and it would be like, like, I don't know if the listeners are old enough to remember that, but I actually remember before the 56K modem, like the 144K, where you would literally watch a web page load. It would take 30 seconds and it would be mostly text. If there was an image on that web page, it might take a minute. It, it was excruciatingly slow. It was slow, but it kind of got us to where we are today. And and I remember being at Fortune Small Business, and it, I, we had an e-newsletter, and someone wrote to me um, from Vietnam, and they had a problem with nepotism in their factory, and they were looking for advice. And this was when – now we take this for granted, the free flow of information. But I thought, wow, this is going to be – kind of earth shattering right that this guy can write to me from half a world away and get advice on a management issue that might be handled differently in this country than in his country and think of how that levels the playing field just the flow of information now it you know all the information you could ever want is out there um, but the cost of things has come down too I remember 11 years ago when I went into business one of my clients asked me to price out building a new website for his company, which was like a 10 person company. 
And the cheapest price I got was $50,000. It did have functionality. <laughs> You're laughing, right? I know oh, now yeah. my, I, my I remember it. For free. It came down so rapidly. Plus, think about phones, right? The, the, um, the iPhone and Android phones. I mean, my phone does so many things for me in my business. I was thinking about this one day when I was doing a Facebook Live of a panel discussion about the book at the Brooklyn Public Library. And I had someone in the audience holding the phone and filming it for my Facebook fans so they could watch it if they were in other parts of the world. And then the library asked me to sell the book. So I had Square and I went out after the event and I plugged in my little Square uh, gadget and I was processing transactions. Then I have I have Everlands tracking my mileage for the accountant, you know, tracking my, I live in New Jersey, me driving from New Jersey to Brooklyn and so on. I mean, there's just so many functions these little things do and we, we take it for granted, but it really expands what one person can do. Plus there's a lot more, you know, you if you get into CRM systems, right? Um, how did you use your customers now you know now you can have a big mailing list of all the people that love what your company does and communicate with them when you have something new for them that that has value right it, it used to cost a lot of money to hire a firm to reach say 30,000 customers but it wouldn't be uncommon for a successful one person business to have a list of 30,000 people after say you know being in business 10 or 15 years so you could uh, it's incredible to me what the reach is and you don't have to be a techie. That's the beauty of it. These things are designed to be easy. Social media. Um, one woman I met after I wrote the book, um, Iris Scott spoke on a couple of panels that I've done. She's a fine artist written up in art magazines. And when she went to art school, she was told price your art very high or else people won't value it. And she felt very strongly that art should be for everyone. So she went against the conventional wisdom, sold the paintings on Facebook for 50 bucks each. And, and she started building up a following. And as they sold out, she would raise the price. And now a few years later, her murals sell for $45,000 a painting. And she did wow. conventional things like she would, you know, supposedly the artist is supposed to have only their own inspiration. And yet she would ask people, you know, I'm thinking of adding red to this part of the painting. And she's a serious artist. She's she's not, um, you know, just churning out schlock. It's real art. But she takes input. And, and how, she, you know, it's really Facebook and Instagram that she's mastered that allow her to communicate with her audience and break down some of the artificial barriers that were in her industry. And I thought that was such a powerful example of just taking things into your own hands. She hasn't completely ignored the traditional art world. She is in two galleries. She was using U Gallery originally, which was, um, they were actually an entrant in a business plan competition. I used to run at Fortune Small Business Magazine. They're a platform where artists can sell their work online, but as her work went up in price, they're sort of an ideal price point. She, um, I believe, moved off that platform and then became more independent in terms of selling the work. But that that's also a great resource for anyone who's listening who's in the arts. Yeah, it's 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 actually, you know, for, for those of us who are old enough, and I am old, I remember, like, you, you take it for, for granted what you can do right now in terms of, like, let's say, launching an e-commerce site. 15 years ago, you would have to build out the servers. It was literally a million dollar build out. 
uh, you would have to run your servers. You'd have to have a, a network engineer. You'd have to have a climate controlled space. It was very like back before the dot com bust, which was what ninety nine, right? Ninety eight, ninety nine. You you needed millions of dollars to start an internet company. Now you can do it for literally under a thousand dollars. It's incredible. It, it's it's insane. Really- yeah, it's funny because that was one of the most surprising things that I gleaned from the research was how little some of the um, investment amounts were to start up. Often when I speak to groups, they say, you know, I would love to start a business, but I can't raise venture capital. I don't have access to capital. I don't have the network. And that might be true. It is sort of a closed world and hopefully will become more open in the future. But you might not need it. I've seen more people going to kickstarter to raise money and going to their own social networks i saw this with um, an entrepreneur i profiled recently for forbes he was a physical therapist and he came up with a device called the neck hammock he, he had been a football player in an earlier life and he still had neck pain and so he raised the money on kickstarter and indiegogo i believe he raised 1.8 million dollars if i remember correctly and that gave him funding, but he loved physical therapy, so he didn't give up on that either. His name is Steven Sudell. Um, he does that 35 hours a week. And what, what I love, is he, he, he came to a panel I did in Chicago. He shared with me that Catherine Krug, who's in the book, the um, founder of Better Back, who also raised money for her back su- support device on Kickstarter, was his mentor. They both live in California. Uh-huh. And I, 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 it spoke to the generosity that I saw in this community because I think the folks, they really like helping the other one-person businesses. It just seems very different from the cutthroat world of corporate America. They, I think that there's more of a, like a more the merrier attitude. And so she really helped him to pull it off. And now he's got a business. I believe his revenue is about total revenue from the product has been about three million dollars and he's still doing what he loves which is the physical therapy um there are a lot of hybrid businesses like that you know where they're bringing in revenue from more than one source and that's part of the message of the book and why i have so many case studies is there's not really a cookie cutter way to do this sometimes people feel like you know i would just like the just add water version of starting a business because i don't know where to begin there really isn't um, there's a lot of room for being creative and the the way to find the next step a lot of times is to really talk to other people, to go to meetups, to join online groups, to read because, uh, for instance, an e-commerce business, there are probably 50 different ways you could start it. You, you, you can't really follow a blueprint and get the same results every time. But if you speak to enough people, you see enough case studies, then you'll have some good clues as to where to go next with this. Well, that, that's the other thing that's very powerful about the internet is all this information is free. There's, there's a thing called Google. Just Google it. You could literally watch YouTube videos. I mean, obviously, you have to kind of wade your way through to people trying to sell you, you know, a course that's going to help you. But when it comes down to it, you can make, you can invest your time and just apply that knowledge because the knowledge is out there or buy, you know, a couple of books like, like your book, you know, where you can, you can read case studies and then you, out of those case studies, 
or those ideas, you can marry two ideas and then you have the, the practical elements, you know, on the back end to kind of make it all work. But just going back to, um, Elaine, what you were saying about VCs is not only is it not necessary to raise VC money, but you don't want to. You, you're, you are then pressured to grow super fast. You're going to give away a, a very big chunk of your business. It's not like VCs or your, you know, your old uh, friendly uh, aunt, rich aunt, who's just going to give you a, a pile of cash and let you go on your way. That's not how it works. They will, you know, there are multiple rounds. That means that you're constantly being diluted. You're sharing the company. Like, for instance, just coming from, you know, I, I own a media company, and one of the apps that we developed uh, internally is called an app called Still Believe, which essentially you take a picture in your home of your child sleeping, and then we turn that picture into a video of the tooth fairy coming and you know, dropping off and you know, grabbing the tooth and dropping off money. And we also do it for, for Santa, Santa Claus. Claus. Oh, what a great idea. <laughs> yeah. So, so it's we, a little bit smaller. So, so we do that and, uh, we, you know, we, I've, I created the app, uh, and what's great about it is I use kind of like the feature film, uh, visual effects artists, like the, the tooth fairy was created by DreamWorks animators the Santa is the Macy's Day Santa Claus. And then we take that photo and we make it look like you actually caught Santa or Tooth Fairy. So we have we have a free option, we have in-app purchases. So but the, the kicker is we we render these videos in the cloud on Amazon servers. So we rent the servers from Amazon, which is the you know one of the biggest companies on the planet. So our capacity is equivalent to the capacity of Amazon. I mean, obviously we'd have to pay for it, but right, so right now we have the ability to process worldwide 24 seven, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, over 15,000 orders an hour. And if we got more than 15,000 orders an hour, which we don't have right now, we could scale that up to 25,000, 50,000, 100,000. So basically unlimited capacity. And, you know, just going back 10 years ago, if I had to build out these servers, it would have been astronomically expensive. And it would have cost, the monthly fixed cost would have been hundreds of thousands of dollars. It just, w and I would have had to have raised outside capital. There's, there's no way this, this idea would have existed without outside capital. But in 2019, it's very possible for you to, you know, hire an app developer on, on Freelancer or Upwork or there's, there's other ones. Uh, work with that developer on your app idea or website or e-commerce or whatever it is um, and then and then launch something and then rent out world-class capabilities and capacity from internet giants so it's very very possible it's a very good point um, it, I, I remember hearing VCs say 
at the time those prices were coming down that it was hard to find deals where the entrepreneurs needed enough money to make it worth their while to do a deal. So you're, you're absolutely right about it. And that's great because I think there are a lot of people that maybe would have been um, deterred by these big numbers. It's a little bit intimidating, you know, when you think about investing vast amounts of money in a business, but when it's really such a low barrier to entry, I think entrepreneurship becomes much more accessible to people that are entrepreneurial, um, but maybe are hesitant to leave the world of a, of a big company or a government job. Yeah. And it's, it, it's something too, where, you know, the, in the world of entrepreneurship, there's also, you know, there's also the dark side, right? There, a lot of businesses fail. It's just, you know, so you, you start an idea, it doesn't work, it fails. But what's great about in today's environment is you can you can almost test out an idea. You could with a, with a hundred bucks, you could you could throw up a landing page and throw up you know spend a hundred dollars on Facebook ads or Instagram ads and see if there's any traction. And then don't build anything, don't do anything until you know there's a market. That is unheard of. That was unheard. You used to have to take the you had a hunch. Sure, you could do focus groups and market research, but it was still really a hunch. This is the market telling you. It's the, the best business is for people to come to you and say, oh, I saw what you did. I want one of those. It's the best. That's, that's the top of the heap. You can do that with a you know, investment is in as little as a hundred dollars. Oh, you're so great. It's funny because um, one entrepreneur I interviewed for Forbes, um, Zach Chen, and I think it was his brother and his father, they wanted to make bacon flavored bourbon and they wanted to see, you know, would anybody buy this? And so (laughs) he posted on Reddit about it to gauge interest. And that's kind of interesting, but he knew that a lot of his target customers would be on Reddit. And so they went ahead and did it after they got good feedback from the marketplace. So you, it's, it's definitely great to float ideas out there, um, which brings me to a point that maybe people need to be reminded of. Um, it's often better to put your idea out there. You wanna protect your intellectual property, but even if people know your idea, most people will not execute on it, right? Because we all know how hard it is to actually do anything, whether it's writing a book or renovating a home or oh, it's it's most the majority of people are are lazy. They they they're I would say ninety nine point nine percent of the people will not steal your idea because it's too hard to execute on that idea. It it just it that's just the reality. You could literally just put your idea and you know put on a billboard and kind of strap it on your back and walk through Times Square. It, it, no one's going to do anything. No one's going to do it. They might love the idea and say they're going to steal it, but they're not going to actually do the hard work. It's like running a marathon, not going to do it. You're right. So I think it's better to get feedback and put it out there and, and, and hear from the market than to just keep the idea to yourself and never act on it. Um, because even if someone else were to execute on something similar, they're never going to do it exactly the same way you would. Similar to, I used to take creative writing courses and every once in a while someone would have copyright, whatever, you know, on their unpublished story. And you would think, 
who's going to steal your story? They can never tell it the exact same way you <laughs> tell it anyway. But it's just sort of a, a um, you know, a newbie mindset that um, takes some getting over. I mean, I'm not saying you should be reckless. If you do have a good idea that requires patenting and things like that, you should definitely get a good intellectual property attorney. But often people, I think, are overprotective and then they it, it leads to inaction. Yeah. And it, yeah. And it's an excuse not to do, you know, it's like, oh, you know, I, I someone's going to steal my idea. So I'm just going to be I'm going to comfortably think about it. And that and that'll suffice. You've, you've got to make that that first step of the the thousand mile journey. You're right. And, you know, the first step is a hard thing for people. I, I often get asked that question. They get excited by the case studies in the book or other coverage that I've done. They say, you know, I would like to start an idea. I have a great idea, but I um, I just don't know where to begin. Yes. And, and what, what I would recommend is think about the basics of, of what a, a business actually is. A business involves selling something, right? Otherwise it, it's either a startup or a hobby. So so you wanna get as close as you can to having something to sell, figuring out what that will be, and then actually putting it out there in the marketplace for sale. You know, with a service, it's pretty easy, right? Because of these freelance marketplaces, you named some of the good ones out there. Um, you know, say you're an accountant who specializes in accounting on zero. That's one of the accounting platforms. You could put up a profile on Upwork, see if you start getting interest, or you network with people that you already know through your work um, and do it that way. Um, but with a product, it's a little different, right? You may have to create a prototype. In that case, maybe you put up um, a drawing of it on Kickstarter and you get feedback and you see you know, would people put their money behind pre-ordering this thing? You know, that's the test is to right. spend their money on it. Not just, you know, because you could always ask your friends and they'll say, oh, that's awesome. You know, your spouse, oh, that's so great, honey. But the real test is whether strangers will buy it from you. And that's uh, the test. Yeah. It. Yeah. And you need to and you do feel very vulnerable. I mean, we all do. But I think you have to desensitize yourself to that if you want to be an entrepreneur, because we live in a world of internet trolls and, and you know people that don't always have your best interest in mind but you have to kind of tune them out it takes a lot of discipline to do that but once you can do that you'll really open up a world of opportunity for yourself so elaine why do you think um so initially your article and now the book has struck such a chord with with people and, and I'm asking this, trying, trying to like, uh, is it, do you think it's because people are um, stretched too thin, living paycheck to paycheck, or is it because they are sick and tired of their, their corporate drone-like jobs where they're told when to show up, what to do, meeting after meeting, or do you think it's a... Uh, combination of both or is it is it a dream what what do you feel what why do you think it's it struck such a chord with people well i think there are a lot of people that aren't happy with how corporate america is right now i think years ago big companies had more of a sense of responsibility to the community and there's been a lot of short-termism in terms of their thinking so people 
look at them in a different way than maybe they once did. I'm not saying all big corporations are bad. Every company is different. Um, but I think people also look at the career tra trajectory in big companies. And if you look at it, a lot of people get forced out once they're in their late 40s, 50s. So they may invest their whole life, maybe not within the same company. We all know that jobs don't last forever, but they get kind of pushed out of the whole field and they can't get back in. So then they look at it and think, well, like, why am I working so hard? Why am I spending my time in airport lounges going to meetings around the country? Why am I not seeing my family when this is probably going to happen to me? And I, you know, maybe I'll be working a lot longer than I thought in the beginning because pe people live longer, people working longer for a variety of reasons, not just economic needs. Sometimes people just like to stay in their field. Um, so part of it is that um, I think a lot of people really don't know how to get into entrepreneurship and seeing these everyday examples makes it much more accessible. That's one reason I've enjoyed doing panel discussions with the real entrepreneurs from the book, because when you meet these folks, they're so down to earth, they're regular people like anyone else, and they've been able to pull this off. So it's, it's very inspiring, I think, because these folks are a little bit ahead of where the average solo entrepreneur is, but not so far ahead that they're Elon Musk. And we just think, you know, he's like, a you know, an Olympic star of, of entrepreneurship. Most people can't really aspire to being him and might not even want to be. They, they right. might have the same aspirations. Yeah, no, he he's uh, and he's in the press. He's been in the press recently. I mean, he's basically like the Michael Jordan of business right now. I mean, he's he's top top of the game. Um, so, what is one thing, uh, let's say, someone or a listener can do today to start on their journey to building a successful one-person business? First, I would try to think about where you can solve a pain point in the marketplace because being very niche is important for the one-person business. This is where you can really outdo the bigger companies. So, for instance, say you wanted to start an e-commerce business. It might seem very hard to take on the Amazons of the world, but you don't necessarily have to. You could actually start a store on Amazon, but be a curator of a certain type of product that you know very well. Um, or, or do your own store. Alan Walton, one of the entrepreneurs I profiled and one of the entrepreneurs in that original article got a job um, as a, I think he was a teen actually or in his early 20s working in a spy camera store and he learned everything about spy cameras you know that you could ever want to know. Eventually he, he uh, ran a spy camera store online for someone else and then he went up starting his own um, and because he had that niche expertise, it's an industry where not that many people really know the cameras inside out. He's able to pick a very small number of cameras, limiting his inventory to the ones that performed really well for the customers over the years um, that didn't need a lot of customer support because he was going to be a one person business for a while and he'd be the customer support. And, um, and, and that gave him a competitive edge. Now he's scaling up a little bit. I think he's at five or six employees now. Um, but in the beginning, it was just him. And, and he just leaned into what he knew. So think about what you know better than other people around you. Where do people come to you for advice? Um, where do you help people for free? Sometimes you might be doing volunteer stuff where people are just like, you are so awesome at that. There's a woman I came across after I wrote the book, 
who um, runs a company called Booby Bars. And what, she was a, ne a neonatal intensive care nurse and had a lactation group for new moms. And she started noticing that they needed um, an energy bar to keep up their energy uh, while having new babies. And she started baking these bars in her home and bringing them in. And then they wanted so many of them, she started charging for it. And then they said, you should really sell this, right? How many times do people get that instruction? <laughs> but she actually researched it and she went to a co-packer and she went on Shark Tank eventually with no business experience whatsoever. She's a nurse by career, a mom with three kids. And now it's in Walmart. That's it's it's crazy. That's such a crazy idea. Like if you if you were to say that to someone, they would almost like kind of laugh in your face. Like, oh, that would never work. And now now the bars are in Walmart. Exactly. And even the name of it, you know, you would think, oh, would that be a little too direct for Walmart? But it wasn't even an issue. She spoke on a panel I did in San Francisco, and she was, I think, almost certain they weren't going to carry the product, but it, it didn't even matter to them. Um, and so. It's really amazing what you can accomplish if you really lean into what you're good at. Yeah, no, that's that's those are two great stories. I remember the story of the uh, the spy camera uh, guy who did that. And again, like just when I when I started to read the case study in the story, or I'm sorry, listen to it in the book, I was like, oh, that's never gonna work. This guy, this is gonna, this is not gonna work. This guy's gonna maybe get have some success, but there's a market. There's a market for this, for these, what I, I don't want to say crazy ideas, but let's say unconventional ideas. And you know, also too, it's like if what's great about the internet is you can reach these people. These people, they, so the, the you know, for someone who wants a spy, I mean, I have not, I don't have a need for a spy camera, but there are tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people that need a spy camera. You know, that's that's what they need, and you know, this this gentleman's you know filled that need, so there was a problem. He he solved it, and now he's he's doing very well. And you can do this with service businesses too. Uh, Megan Kelpner is a nutritionist and um, she was also one of the early entrepreneurs I profiled. She worked in advertising and in her 20s went on a trip to Africa, became very ill and was diagnosed with Crohn's disease and was determined to heal herself. She didn't like the conventional treatment so she actually left her advertising career, went back to school, studied nutrition and then started blogging about nutrition. And she, she spoke at one panel I did up in Toronto. And she said she literally blogged every day of the week for, I think it was like four years. And it just sort of built up her brand around her views on nutrition. And then she started selling a product. It was called the three-day green smoothie fast. And it was literally, I mean, this was like 11 years ago. It was a PDF document, right? Like you would think you couldn't sell a <laughs> document. And she sold it. She didn't even really have an email list. She had just like the people in her email, you know, like their email addresses. So she said, right, right. offered it for sale for, I think the price was $10. Wow. And, and she was able to sell it. So that gave her confidence. And then she started introducing new products and, you know, courses and that sort of thing. And then she ultimately created the Academy of Culinary Nutrition, which is a school that teaches her cooking methods. Along the way, she became a cookbook author. So she wrote The Undiet and The Undiet Cookbook for Random House Canada. And um, 
now she doesn't really, I, I think she doesn't work with patients directly at all. She scales her message through education and she's doing business coaching and that sort of thing. And the business has grown with her life. She started out um, as a young woman with no family. Now she has a little boy who I think is about one years old. And so she's been able to flex the business by um, using things like automation to extend what she can do. She's able to take the whole summer off to be with him and um, travel and that sort of thing. She's really crafted it around the lifestyle she and her husband, Josh, want. And that that's an important lesson from these stories too, that there's no price you can really put on your time, right? You know, when you have a small child, for instance, if you want to travel at a point in your life where you have freedom, then that has value too beyond money. And that's one of these things that this type of business can bring you. Oh yeah. It's, it's very, and I think people are starting to kind of wake up and realize that, that, you know, you're, we all have a limited time on this earth and see our children grow up, right? Do you, do you really want to be putting in 80, 90, a hundred hours a week when, you know, you hit 40 and then the company uh, thinks that, you know, they can put you out to pasture for all your hard work. Uh, so there, there's, I think people are waking up to realize that, you know, money's not everything. And there's, there's a work life balance that people, you know, are seeking, you know, you know that, that could be another thing that's attracting people to your, um, to your book is, you know, to, to achieve that, to set your own schedule, that, that, that freedom. People do need more freedom because literally people are getting sick from the way that their companies run. And they, I mean, the stress, think about all the stress-related illnesses. There are a lot of people I've come across who had a health wake-up call, and that led them to start a business because they were just working too many hours, not able to exercise, not able to eat right. They were just perpetually stressed out, and they can't take it anymore. They literally, their body can't take it, and they're just falling apart, you know? <laughs> so they- No, uh, it's, it's, it's true, it's where, we have, we're interviewing, um, I think it's later this month, uh, the author of Dying for a Paycheck. Are you familiar with that book? Yes, yeah, that he's, he's a leader in, in that area of thinking. And yes, I do know the book. It's, um, it's, it's an important thing to think about because a lot of this goes to modern management and it's by design. And there are companies that are responsible about this stuff, but there are a lot that are not. You know, it's it it's very it's very interesting because the his his premise is that uh, you know CEOs have blood on their hands that they're literally killing killing people. So he's equating it to like the environmental movement. This is this is his book is like the Silent Spring for workers, where you know you take. Um, you know, you're you're sitting all day at your at your job. You're in this unnatural environment. You're not humans weren't meant to do this. You have all the the stress of getting to your job, um, all the undue stress of you know your your workload, and you know you you have this set regiment schedule that it's and it's been documented that you know your heart disease, people are getting obese. Um, you know, the, the list goes on and on. And what can and... we do? I mean, honestly, with like the commute today and, you know, the, the, the work environment that they're forced to work in, a lot of, you know, once you're in that environment, it's very hard to control your own health. The author, by the way, is Jeffrey 
Pfeffer, I think is it pronounced. Yeah, it's I, I believe it's I think believe it's Pfeffer, yes. Pfeffer. Um P F E F F E R for anyone who wants to read it. It's a really important message. But when you're when you're on your own, I know like I sometimes people ask me this. I you know, I'm a mother of four, my kids are ages eight to fifteen now. My oldest are twins and they just turned fifteen. But uh, you know, I'm able, some days I'm able to exercise two times a day. I break up my writing that way. So I'm not sitting at a desk all day. I have, I have my own makeshift stand up desk, but because I don't have a commute and because I, I can control my calendar, I have in when I'm going to exercise every week, I have that in my calendar and it's non-negotiable unless I'm sick or something like that. Um, you have that control, but I can never do that if I had an office job because all oh, my it, discretionary time would be spent on a train or a bus. You would be on the, uh, the New Jersey, Jersey transit. transit. Oh. Yeah, let's, let, we shouldn't get started on that. <laughs> I think I could go. Oh, I could go. I could go. I I have an office in Manhattan, which I'm at today on 36th and 8th. But I, when I have the chance to work from home, I do work from home. And I commute on the Long Island Railroad. And we, we could take a right turn and just absolutely trash on commuting. But I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to silence myself. I'm not going to take that carrot. Um, but you're right. If you, had, you know, if you were commuting into Manhattan, uh, for instance, you would lose a solid, I don't know where you are in Jersey, but I'm saying you'd lose a solid two hours each day. So a lot of people, they just, you know, they, they get up, they, ha you know, take a shower, have something to eat, get on that train, get into work, work a full day, come commute back home. By the time they get home, they have just enough time to eat dinner, maybe watch a little TV, read a book, and then fall into bed and then rinse and repeat, you know, five days a week. It's, yeah, it's brutal. Cool. I'm meant to live that way. They really aren't. But we, what what I think holds people back from trying something else is fear of losing economic security. A lot of people have not been exposed to entrepreneurship, and so like you and I are, we travel around people who are doing this, right? And um, I don't know the full size of your business, but I consider myself on the continuum of entrepreneurialism or, you know, entrepreneurial thinking. I'm like a, a, a risk taker light. You know what I mean? I'm not going to go raise venture capital most likely, but I, but I have some risk tolerance. A lot of people have been conditioned by schools and the work environment to think that they can't make money on their own, or they just haven't been exposed to the idea that they can. So it's a very scary feeling. I hear a lot of people say, oh, I could never start a business because I have kids or you can't make a living as a freelancer or you can't own a home if you have your own business. They, they have certain beliefs that have been ingrained in them by society. Now, some people really cannot handle financial risk. And so part of, um, you know, if you want to have the freedom and control over your lifestyle and lead a healthier life in this way, you have to think about this, right? Like, because the stress of feeling like you're not getting a paycheck for some people will be even more unhealthy than their unhealthy job. But a lot of oh, people, yeah, yeah. absolutely, up. like you know, like Laszlo Nadler, who I mentioned in the beginning, where you gradually test the idea. You don't leap before you're making a replica of your corporate salary then it's not such a risky proposition then maybe the riskier proposition is staying in a job where 
at a certain birthday, you're going to get laid off almost regardless of how good you are at the job. I mean, I just see that over and over again. And it's, it's, it's very disheartening. And then you, you, you find um, people lose confidence, they become depressed, and they lose a sense of their own value. Whereas in your own business, you know, it's so invigorating. I mean, you and I both know this because it's, I mean, it's just, I never ever dread waking up and working in my business. And I don't right. think any of these entrepreneurs in the book wake up feeling like, oh, bummer, I've got to run my business. But a lot of people feel that way when they go to work. Oh, a, lo a lot of people. Yeah. And so it's, I think the more that the average person can take the risk out of it for themselves, the more accessible this whole movement is to them. And and the more you take away the idea that you have to be Elon Musk, the, the easier it will be because when you set the bar so high that you've got to be one of the greatest entrepreneurial geniuses in the world to do things, then you'll, you'll never do it. But, you, right. but the point of these stories is you could still make a very good living. I mean, when you're talking about a million dollars in revenue, we're both in the New York City area, a high tax area. Probably a lot of these folks, when all is said and done, would be bringing home between Two hundred thousand and four hundred thousand. That's enough to raise a family in a big, you know, metro area. It's not going to make you a multimillionaire because the cost of living is so high, but it allows you to replicate a senior level corporate income. Now, there's a lot of variation in that because of tax strategies people use and how much they invest in inventory. And, you know, there's, there's any number of variables as anyone who's listening who runs a business knows. But I think that's a pretty safe area to um, bet on that you could probably bring in that amount in the end. Uh, yeah, and also to, you know, to mitigate that financial risk is don't don't quit your job. Just you, you, you've got nights and weekends. Just don't, don't binge on House of Cards or binge on series for Netflix. Like you have the time. You just have to make. You just have to prioritize your time. And then if your idea gains traction, so so money starts to filter in. At one point where you'll be like, oh, you'll come to the realization like I could live on this now. Now I'm healthy into the six figures. There's a demand for this. Then it's an easier decision as as opposed to okay I'm going to quit my job tomorrow and then I'm going to start something sometime in the future. That's a bad idea. <laughs> that's that's a recipe for disaster. Well, you can also you know if you're used to working in an office around a lot of other people, then you quit your job, cut off your whole daily network, and you're in your home office working. It can be a little lonely and isolating, even if you go to a co-working space it's going to be different at first. And it's such a big transition that I think if you do it gradually, it's better. I mean, sometimes you can't help it, right? You get laid off or whatever. You're going to start a business under less than ideal circumstances. Many people do. It can be done. It's been done zillions of times before, but I think it's always better to not do things from a position of panic because you're not going to make the best decisions when you're panicked about, okay, how do I pay my mortgage or I might lose my house or, you know, my kids don't have groceries. What am I going to do now? You don't really want to be that entrepreneur if you can help it. But if you are, then you rise to the occasion and you, you figure out how to, how to make it work. Yeah. That's not fun. Not having money to pay the bills is not a, that's not a fun ride. We're not telling you to get on that ride. You want to do, and and there are risks. There are risks associated with it. You know, there there are risks with everything. There's risks with staying with your corporate job, 
you know, you, you could be fired tomorrow. Uh, another company could buy out your company and you'll, you're a redundancy. So you get kicked to the curb. It's, it's not, it's not always, especially in today's environment, it's not, it's not always that the corporate job is the safer option. I think the best option is to do, uh, do a side hustle, get something, get another form of income coming in, and then you kind of hedge your bets. You could even continue at your corporate job. If you don't hate it that much, you could just stay there, and then you could make an extra $50,000, $100,000, $200,000 a year. Wouldn't that be nice? You know, if you could work nights and weekends. I, I actually interviewed someone who was a marketer who he had a very small marketing business that he would scale up or down because there were cycles in his industry. I remember interviewing him during the recession and he had scaled it up because uh, he, I, I forget what the circumstances where he either left his job or lost his job. Um, so that was one of the periods where he just sort of revved that up. And then when he would get a job, he'd rev it back down again. And he'd had it going for years and years. And he, I, there was one period where his children were in private school and he needed more money. So he revved it up on the side a lot more. So you can do that. You, you just have to make sure you're not violating your employment agreement because that can be a tricky area and figuring out if you are or aren't requires some discretion, right? I don't know if right, you want to right, bust right. HR and ask about it. Um, but a lot of people are pretty candid about it with their company. Maybe, you know, like they work in accounting and they're starting an e-commerce store. that would not be any kind of conflict of interest with the company. So they're quite candid about it, that it's not going to cut into their work time and they're not going to work on it during company time, et cetera. And often the companies are quite supportive. Yeah, you, I mean, you have to you have to be transparent about that, and and you know, I mean, you can't you know you can't bring your your side hustle work to work and do it there. That's that's not fair to your current employer. And you can't um, clients, and that's sort of yeah. That's that yeah. You can, we're not we're not suggesting that by any stretch of the imagination. It has to be on the up and up. Um, so how, so Elaine, how do you manage running your business and your family today? What are, what are the struggles? What are the benefits? Well, I, my husband and I have four children, as I mentioned, right? So that alone means a lot of moving parts, right? <laughs> so yes. um, we don't have a nanny. We, we never have had one. We, we, we've juggled it ourselves. Luckily, he, he always had a business um, that he ran. He's a real estate appraiser. And for most of the 11 years I've been in business, we were um, a two freelancer couple. In the beginning, I had a work from home arrangement with Time Inc. where I worked the first four years I had kids. And then logistics of my life started taking over and it was diminishing the pleasure of doing either my job or raising my family. So I thought, okay, I'm ready to make this change now. I've been writing about it for so many years. Now I'm ready to go into business for myself. Um, I, th I think a lot of it is focus. I mean, I, I can't uh, sell myself as a lifestyle guru because my life is far from perfect. You know, if you come <laughs> into my house, it might be a little messy. Um, I, I, you know, I don't do everything perfectly. I, I try to focus on what's really important to me and my husband. So we need to make a living. Um, that's probably the second priori priority. Our, you know, our marriage and our children would be number one. Um, and all the other stuff you know, sort of falls into place, right? If you, I, I think if you have unreasonable standards of perfection, then you're going to be unhappy. Um, right. There are things that come up, you know, in a business like cash flow issues and things like that. When you, when you um, are a couple that is entrepreneurial, 
you have to manage for that. So that requires a sort of concerted effort to allow yourself the runway to run a business. So we, we live in a house that's much smaller than a lot of people that have four kids. We have a 2000 square foot house. We, we live below our means because I started the business and then we went into the great recession. So I know what that's like. And so right. when we moved here, we lived in Jersey city, New Jersey, when the kids got a little bigger, we moved out to suburbia. We had the option of choosing a bigger house. We decided not to do that because we remembered what that was like. And we thought, you know what, we never want to be pressured by the house that we own. You know, if there if there was like a really big, dramatic economic disaster like that that affected everybody. So we've, we've built our financial lives for that. Um, I bring in advisors to help. I have a financial planner um, to help guide us because that's not my strong point investing and that sort of thing but but it's important as a freelancer that you do save money and have a cushion and that you invest for your own retirement that's one reason for the focus of the book on bringing in higher revenue because there is no social safety net for us right if we lose our work we don't get to go on unemployment so right right source of even though you pay taxes you are your own source of unemployment you are your own source of retirement funding so you you have to be proactive about it and part of the only way you can really save money right and most americans have trouble saving money because the rising cost of living has made it very hard wages haven't kept pace etc um, but in a freelance business you you can make certain adjustments that are not available to people in a job so if you feel like i'm not saving enough you could say to yourself well could i take on one more freelance project a week or could i raise my prices a little bit to build in that part of my overhead which is providing for my own retirement and you can think that way whereas you you, you can't really do that in a job or if you have a side business if you're in a job and maybe you do have the benefits covered but maybe you're still not saving enough maybe you say you know what maybe i should drive for uber a little bit on the side and and build up my nest egg for a couple of months and then just not touch that money you 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 can do that too to a different extent yeah no it's it's you know it it, it is it is a challenging um environment for for an entrepreneur i mean i and you i read sorry listen to this in your book with healthcare benefits my um uh, my wife just recently went back part-time. She's a nurse. And she went back strictly for health benefits. It, 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 was, was, it, it was almost inconsequential what she got paid. The benefits that I had to pay for the family was egregiously, ridiculously, unbelievably high. And it went up so much each each year where once it eclipsed my mortgage payment and this past year it eclipsed it by a lot i said this is pure insanity that we're we're spending this much money and i i mean i go to the doctor one once a once a year my bo- i have two boys 14 and 11 i mean sure they go to the doctor but for checkups and if they get the flu and my wife goes twice a year, and we were, um, you know, we're we're spending. I don't want to say the number. It was just so egregious. It wasn't even. It wasn't even funny. And I said, "This is this is this is ridiculous. This is absolutely insane." 
Yeah, it's nuts. It's um, and I, like I'm in a similar region, so I know exactly what you're talking about. You, it's insanity. And even if you go to a high deductible plan, we did that. We reached that same point, and then we said we finally have to cry uncle and go to a high deductible plan. Even that is not cheap. Um, and actually, what my husband had a client who he loved who offered him to come in house, and it wouldn't change his freedom to work when and where he wants and that sort of thing. And he did that about two years ago. And I agree with. The benefits are valuable. I think I yeah. um, the, what I recommend if in a business you really need to make 140 percent of what you were making. Um, you have to make 40 percent more rather than what you were making um, to make up for the cost of benefits. I, the government research says it's 30 percent, but if you had a really good job with good benefits, I think you have to allow for a little bit more. Um, because a lot of people in big companies, they don't realize how valuable the benefits actually are. And the healthcare is just a nightmare. It, it, it's, it, a, it's a nightmare. And even the high deductible plans, like I, I wanted to get insurance just for me, where like I'll pay for the doctor's appointment out of pocket. I'll pay for the dentist. But if something catastrophic happens to me, like if I get cancer, I get hit by a car, I want to be covered. But otherwise, I won't use, I'm perfectly healthy. I won't use it. And they wouldn't do it. They would not. They. It had to be a whole family plan or nothing. It's just, it was insane. But that's why, I mean, that was originally one of the um, things that sparked me to write the book. Because I remember those giant increases, too. I remember one time I opened it. It was like the second year in a row where it went up by $600 a month. You know what I'm talking about? Right, yeah, yeah. I know exactly what you're talking One time it went up. Yeah. It went up. Mine went up more than that. It went up $800. And I, I called the uh, insurance company. I thought it was a mistake. I thought it was, should have went up $80. And they're like, no, no, sir. It's up $800. I was like, are you? <laughs> what do we do? Like, It truly is. But that's why, that's why financial planning is so important for freelancers. Because you're contending with this complete wild card that is – it's it just it's, it's inhumane the way freelancers are treated on that front in this country and there's been a little bit of progress i mean there there was obamacare so that i i i heard freelancers say to me that they they weren't 100% happy with their plans but it was something that they had now things are in flux again and you look at other countries and you think how come so many other countries seem to have gotten this better than us but but it's just reality and it, it shouldn't stop anyone from starting a business but you do need to you need to plan accordingly so one of the reasons we have a smaller house was we realized what was happening with those costs right and so if you basically right. mortgage payments well then one of the mortgages better not be a stretch mortgage right? because the yeah. other is going to be eventually but hopefully that will get fixed it just seems like there are so many uh, yeah i have i have a little little confidence that it's going to get fixed in this current administration or the next administration there's too much money at stake hospitals pharmaceutical companies insurance companies they're all making gobs of cash like what we put into the system and what we put out at what we took out of the system was so was so off balance it wasn't even it was laughable i know it's really i, I felt like I, I literally felt like i was robbed well the, you know what where i hold out hope is that the number of people who are engaged in freelancing keeps going up and you know whether they're doing it as and i know there's a lot of debate about the numbers but when you include both the 
side giggers and the people that do it full time, it's a lot of people. And I think the more critical mass there is, the more people are going to start asking these questions like, why am I paying this insane amount of money for my health care when I go to the doctor once a year? And, you know, why am I not part of the social safety net? I find when I write the policy articles, fewer people read them. Um, but I'm, in this book, I'm kind of talking about that as well. I mean, that's underneath the surface because the, why do you need to make that much money? You need to make it because you treated almost as a second class citizen. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it's very, very true. And I, you know what it is, is the, is the, the whole sit, the whole system and industry has to change. Like I would love to, I would be like, Oh, I'd love for like Amazon or Google to come in here and just disrupt this entire industry. Like what we were talking about with sheets and blinds and all that good stuff. But it, it's not because the government's involved with Medicare and Medicaid and here's another example, not to get, I want to actually want to wrap this up because I don't want to get too deep into this, but we, when we were switching plans, so my wife worked like, like three or four years ago and she was on, we, we paid Cobra and then from Cobra, we transitioned to my company plan and there were two weeks where we were uninsured, which we weren't aware of. And my wife went to go get, uh, um, I think, a mammogram or some sort of scan. Um, and she, she checked in and th they looked at the insurance. They're like, OK, good to go. She gets it. She's in, she's in and out of there in 20 minutes. The bill was $3,800. We were not covered. So then it takes the hospital six months to find out this error. And then they send us a bill for $3,800. And then my wife called and she's like, look, I know the insurance company was going to pay you $1,200 for this procedure. Why are you charging us $3,800? Oh, gosh, it, that's, that's almost criminal. <laughs> it's, it's, well, that's what they do. It's like Medicare, Medicaid, and your insurance company, you'll get a hospital bill for $50,000, but your insurance company will only pay $11,000. But if you're an individual paying out of pocket, then you know you have to um, you have to pay that full fifty thousand dollars. Anyway, uh, I, I, I I'm going. We could we could do a whole podcast on the healthcare system. We should All at right. some point because I can I have some. There's actually some ideas in the book just based on hard experience on how to how to make it a little less painful. You know. You, well, you could move to. You, you can move to Canada, become a oh, Canadian God. citizen. Yeah, that's that's maybe the quickest way, or Australia, or one of the countries that got a, a more humane system. But but there are some things that I do that can help if you have a high deductible plan. Like you, in alternating years, what we've done is. Oh, that's right. I did. I I did. You did explain this in the book, right? That you would take your like health sp spending account, and then, and then you would strategically use that money, and then wait till the next year, right? Well, you do it in alternating years. Like if you really don't have enough expenses to hit the deductible, then in one year, maybe you say like everybody will get all their tests done next year and we'll hit the deductible that year. So some of it at least will be covered. Then we'll kind of skip a year, assuming nobody has anything urgent where we almost have no medical expenses except checkups and you know the basics. And you kind of alternate so that you hit the deductible every other year. 
because um, there are, you know, there's certain things you don't want to skip, like an annual mammogram or, you know, just certain things your doctor recommends. But sometimes you have some discretion, like maybe you have a lingering problem that you want to check out. Maybe you could do that next year because it's not urgent. You know, your knee's been bothering you for a while or whatever it is. But you can you can um, stagger it a little bit to make it work in your favor and definitely using, um, you know, a health savings account is a good idea to protect your um, your money, you know, there's tax advantages for that. So you, there, there's a little bit about that in the book. It's not overly wonky, so it's pretty accessible. If anyone is listening and getting worried about the healthcare, it's definitely doing it. <laughs> if we're if we're terrifying you with this conversation, well, it's a real thing. I don't like to misrepresent it because that's the one area that is why you do need to make more money but i also believe many people are capable of making more with the right information it, it sometimes it's a matter of doing two or three things in your business and even if you don't get to 1 million in revenue say you're at um 150,000 and you get to 225,000 then all of a sudden the healthcare is not such a big deal. Plus, you have to realize that people in corporations are being asked to pay a lot towards their health care. Remember, and even in government, I was in the park one day and a police officer was telling me that he had to pay a thousand dollars a month towards his health care. Right. And you think, oh, the folks with government, government. Health. Right. No, no, yeah, they're asking people to pay more and more. Yep. Yeah, so it's not it's 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 not that there are no costs in a company unless you're very very lucky with the company. Um, so anyway, um, but definitely a good discussion to to touch on. Yeah. Okay. So we have uh, one more question. So if you had one piece of advice to give to our listeners, the masses, the the human race, what would it be? Just get started. It's easy to talk yourself out of things, but this is similar to any anything that you want to do, whether it's exercising, eating right, calling your mother more, whatever it is. There's, there's no way around actually doing it, right? And once you start doing it, then it will become part of the fabric of your life. Don't worry about what other people think. There are always going to be people when it comes to entrepreneurship who will say it's too risky? Do you know what you're doing? That's crazy. You know the famous naysayers, right? But you you have to tune them out because it's your life. You're the one living it, and if this makes you happy, as long as you're not harming other people by causing them to lose the roof over their head and that sort of thing, then then you should take the first step. If if you if this is truly what you want, no one knows that other than you. But but action is is um, the answer to that question. Awesome. Oh, excellent, Elaine. Thank you so much for taking the time today to talk with myself and uh, our listeners. So, where can um, where can everyone find you on social media? How can they uh, how can they get the book? Just give us give us the uh, rundown. Oh, sure, John. And it's been wonderful. You ask such great questions. And it's always so much fun for me to talk with other business owners because you're asking the things that everybody is wondering about, but often doesn't get discussed when you, you know, you see a TV program about entrepreneurship, all of the nitty gritty stuff that really shapes your life. They can. Well, that, I'm sorry to cut. I'm sorry to cut you off. Go ahead. Oh, no, go, go ahead. It's okay. No, I was going to say that's what's great about podcast and this long form content is that we actually have the time to really delve into the nitty gritty of these subjects where, you know, you're, you're not afforded that, that time on, you know, a TV, a radio, or even, even an article 
um, you, people can really, you know, listen uh, and we can really do a deep dive into some of these subjects. Oh, I love the long format too, because it's like having a conversation. I could tell you and I could go to lunch and we'd be chatting four hours later. <laughs> I love oh, it. easily, I love easily. But um, if people want to reach out to me, I love hearing from people and I do write back. Write to me on LinkedIn under my my name or on Twitter. Um, the name spelling is in the show notes. It's kind of a mouthful, so I won't spell it all out phonetically, but I'm sure it'll be there. Um, or you could write to me on Facebook. My um, page is open to, to anyone who's listening. And um, the, my website is elainepofeld.com or the million dollar one person business.com. And that's written out in words, not numbers. And you can write to me through the contact box on either of those um, pages. And, and the book is on Amazon. I, um, I hope that you enjoy reading it. And if you have any questions about it or want to riff on how you're applying it, I, I love hearing from people who are on this journey too. We're all in it together. So, so do write to me. Okay, great. And you can also listen to it on Audible. That's where I listen to the book, which is uh, Audible is an Amazon company, right? Amazon owns everything. Uh, okay, Elaine. Well, thank you so much. Uh, really appreciate your time. And thank you, everybody, for listening to another episode of The Working Experience. Take care. Thank you, John.